Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I was out working in the yard on Friday morning. I was trimming back some, some rose bushes and uh, about getting ready to get the lawnmower out and mow the grass. And I was working, one of my neighbors was out kind of taking a, a morning stroll. And, you know, we stopped and chat for a little while because that's what you do when your neighbors are out. You actually talk to them. You don't just, uh, you know, you, you pay attention to them. And we talked. And he had mentioned that he wasn't really looking forward to yard work seasoning season starting up, that he was uh, really, really not looking forward to it. And and I told him that I actually found mowing the grass to be therapeutic. I don't know about you, but, but there's just something about the drone of the lawnmower. Uh, nobody can, I can't hear anybody, and nobody can hear me except the Lord. And so I found that some of my best prayer time comes when I'm, when I'm actually on the lawnmower, uh, just, just me and the Lord and the lawnmower. And then I thought about it some more, and I realized that it's th- therapeutic until about July or August. And that's when the grass needs to be cut, but you know what it's like. It's hot, it's dry, maybe it hadn't rained in a bit, and so it's dusty, and the only, the only kind of moisture in the sky, in the air, is what's on you, and then all that stuff just sticks to you. And At that point, I don't know that it's therapeutic anymore. At that point, I think it probably is when it becomes a chore. But I don't know if you're like me, but on days like that, there's nothing better than finishing up the work, whatever the work is, grabbing a nice glass of ice water and, and, and taking a breather. Or, or, you know, going to grab a shower and wash off all the, all the filth. And maybe you've got a job like that where your job's just dirty all the time. And, and at the end of the day, you're tired, you've worked hard, and it feels good just to, just to kick back and, and take a break from, from your labors for the day. But you know what? It's not just physical labor that can wear us out. Ever been in, in, just intellectually exhausted? Maybe if you're a student or you were once a student, you can remember cramming for that test and, and studying all night long for that test or, or maybe finishing that, that big paper that you had. Uh, maybe it was a tough project that, that wore you out. And, and you've been in that place where, where you, you finish, you, the test is over, and, and all you can wait, you can't wait to do anything but some mindless task. And it's something that doesn't require thought or doesn't require any sort of intellectual exertion whatsoever. And maybe you've been there before. Of course, we also know that there's emotional and, and, that, and that sort of psychological exhaustion as well. Have you ever had such a tough week emotionally that you can't, can't take it anymore? I don't want anything else this week. I can't do it anymore. Maybe it's been during seasons of grief or, or hurt or, or even anger. And you, you almost find you get numb after going through those times. You know what else can be exhausting? Discouragement can be exhausting. And we all face times of discouragement. Work isn't going like you want it to. Maybe you feel like you've, you've failed at something. If you've got kids, I promise you, there's going to be a time where you feel, I failed. Uh, you know, I, I failed as a parent. But we all experience these different types of extremes of emotional fatigue in our life. And I don't know about you, but when I go through those times, there's, there's really nothing that, I, I mean, I can't wait for some sort of respite, some sort of rest from whatever that type of exhaustion is. I was, I was looking up the definitions of the word respite this week, and I ran across a really good definition of the word respite. And one dictionary said, a respite is a welcome break. A welcome break. Man, what a, what a good word whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual fatigue, 
What we really need is a, is a welcome break, a much-needed respite from whatever it is that has worn us down. We pick up Acts chapter 18, and we find here a very discouraged Apostle Paul. Again, Luke's report here, it's hard to get there and, and know from Luke's report that there's a great deal of discouragement. But when you just start to put all the pieces together and you start to sprinkle in some of what Paul wrote in his other letters, you have to recognize that, that Paul here is, is, is feeling some pretty significant discouragement. No doubt he was physically exhausted. No doubt he was emotionally spent, and, and even after standing up and preaching there in Athens to those philosopher scholars, you know he was intellectually just tired. I mean, just all those things had, had come upon him, and what he needs when we encounter him in Acts chapter 18 is a welcome break, a much-needed respite. So this morning I want us to kind of come alongside a discouraged Apostle Paul and allow his experience in discouragement to minister to us as we undoubtedly face our own seasons of discouragement and fatigue. If you've got your Bible open to Acts chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 today. I would ask you if you're able to stand as I read these verses, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul's time in Corinth. Eighteen months of his life was spent there. and Thank you for the ministry that, that he provided, but also the ministry that he received. Father, I pray that we would consider these words and realize the application they have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I want to take just a minute to just remember where we find ourselves in the story. Keep in mind, this has been a difficult journey for Paul. There have been converts, of course, don't get me wrong. But those converts that Paul received, they, they came at a high cost. And, and it wasn't like back in Pentecost where a sermon was preached and thousands of people responded. These converts are coming in fits and starts, but a handful at a time. And the first leg of his journey into Europe, Paul stopped at Philippi. Of course, the church at Philippi started there. He saw converts and saw growth. But remember what happened in Philippi? He suffered a, a terrible beating. 
a terrible beating, that, that uh, you don't know the long-term health consequences of, of what he would have endured. He moved on from Philippi, he went to Thessalonica and Berea, and there he encountered significant hostilities to the point that he was forced out of both of those towns. He got to Athens, and he had the opportunity to plead his case in front of the esteemed academic elites. And this was a place where it didn't just test Paul's gospel knowledge, but it tested his ability to bring out a whole new kind of argument for the gospel. Up until this point, he was arguing from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. But now, standing in front of these philosophers, he had to argue from a, what they would say a natural law standpoint of, of who Jesus was and, and why he mattered. And of course, there were converts. There were people who gave their life to Jesus. But we also know there was scorn and indifference. I mentioned last week they called him a, a babbler. If you go back and look at what they said there in chapter 17, literally the word they had for Paul was that he was a seed picker. You say, well, that sounds like a, a, an insult, and it was. Originally, it was used to describe birds picking up seed and grain, but over the years it took on a pejorative term, a pejorative meaning, and it literally meant someone who peddled other people's ideas as original without understanding them. It's basically the same thing as a plagiarist. And so they were accusing Paul of, of what today is an academic crime that would get you kicked out of, out of college or, or fail a class. Paul was being accused of this. And so we pick up in, in chapter 18, and Paul has just endured all these things. He's been, he's been mocked, he's been reviled, he's been beaten, he's faced trials and tribulations. And we find out in verse 18 he's leaving, leaving Athens. Not by force. They weren't driving him out. They liked engaging in his ideas. But he's leaving Athens by choice. You know what? Evangelizing people who spiritually don't care, it really is exhausting. It's exhausting to, to try to pour into people who just don't care about what you have to say. And so Paul had a 50-mile had a journey down to Corinth to reflect on all the challenges that he had faced. He gives us a little bit of insight into his psychological, emotional state in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he tells the church at Corinth this. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. This is Paul saying, this is what my life was like when I got to your town. I was known by weakness and fear and trembling. He'd just been through a terrible ordeal. You know, none of us are like the Apostle Paul. None of us face the challenges that these early Christian pioneers faced. None of us in this room have, have really ever had a sanctioned beating because of the veracity of our Christian faith. But I think here's the truth. We've all been discouraged, right? Every one of us has faced discouragement of some extent. Uh, the last two years, if, if you've not found yourself discouraged at some point in time over the, over the last two years, then I want to know where you lived because, uh, because that's all the last two years have been is just an opportunity to breed constant discouragement. You may find yourself in the midst of a terribly discouraging season right now. But I think Paul's experience here can provide some much-needed respite for our weary souls. And the first thing we understand this is respite is found in community. When Paul first arrived in Corinth, we're told that he connected with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. 
he didn't stay isolated. He didn't hide, even though he may have wanted to. Because, you know, if you've been there, that, that season of discouragement, maybe that breeds just a desire to, to stay away from people, a desire to, to, to be alone. But these two folks that, that Paul met, they would become very important to him in his work. Over in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, he actually says about these people, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I gave thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Let's not miss the significance of what happens first here when Paul arrives in Corinth. He looks at these people, these people, Priscilla and Aquila, become so important to him, become so important in the grand scheme of his ministry. Maybe not in the same way that Titus or Timothy or Silvanus or some of these other guys were, but they become so important in his ministry that he actually points them out in the book of Romans. Well, it turns out that Priscilla and Aquila have a family business. They make tents, and that was Paul's trade as well at some point in time early in his life. And so we're told that Paul comes to Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and he spends an indeterminate amount of time with them. What's he doing? He's helping them in their business. He's just coming alongside, doing life with them, working with them. See, he was helping them, they were also helping him. Because we need people like that when we face seasons of discouragement. We need people that can invest in us, that can love us, that can care for us during those seasons of discouragement. This had to be good for the Apostle Paul's soul. But understand this, he didn't give up his mission work. We find over in verse 4 that if you want to know where Paul was on Saturday, he's down at the synagogue. He's sharing the gospel. He's, he's preaching Jesus, talking about Jesus down in the synagogue. Sunday through Friday, where's Paul? He's helping Priscilla and Aquila make tents. He's serving them and loving them while they're loving him and serving him. It's a great season in Paul's life as he is working to overcome some discouragement and these people help him do it. You know, I've noticed over the years as I've experienced discouragement, I've watched others go through discouraging seasons as well. There's two things that start to happen. One of the first things that starts to happen is people withdraw from community. Yeah, you see it. I mean, we see it all the time. People, people go through some sort of discouraging season, and they withdraw from their church community. They stop coming to their Sunday school class. They, they pull back from, from their community. But another thing that begins to happen is their, their work begins to suffer. What happens when we find ourselves removed from community, our work is suffering? That actually is a dangerous spiral. That discouragement can turn into things that are much worse. And then we find that we're not just discouraged by whatever the initial circumstances were, but then we're discouraged by loneliness and poor performance. Again, we see this happen in church. People experience some sort of hardship or discouragement. That discouragement may lead to deeper psychological and spiritual sickness, and one of the first things they do is they just withdraw from community. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that there's not a time and place to withdraw and reflect, Again, we look at Jesus' ministry. Jesus modeled that for us, right? There were plenty of times where Jesus withdrew from the crowd. He went to pray. He went to reflect. He went to spend time alone. But Jesus never stayed away. Jesus never left and didn't come back. Jesus always, after his time with the Father, after his time in prayer, he always came back to his disciples. Listen, I'm the chief among introverts. I love me some alone time. I don't enjoy being lonely, right? Most introverts will tell you that. They like alone time, but nobody enjoys being lonely. Jesus enjoyed his time alone, but Jesus always came back to his disciples. He, he never 
stayed away. I'm convinced of this, that all of the isolation that we've been doing for the last two years, we're going to pay a very high cost for this. We're going to pay a very high cost for all of the isolation that we have had to endure for the last two years because the reality is, is we are not created, created for isolation. We are created for community. We find a respite for our discouragement in our community. Another place we find respite from discouragement, though, is by reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past. You know, you read verse 5 of chapter 18, and it sounds probably just like a bit of narrative filler, just to kind of move the story along, a little brief mention of, of Silas and Timothy's arrival. But there's more to it when you understand that there's, again, the book of Acts happens in the context of the whole New Testament. Back in chapter 17, Timothy and Silas remained behind in Berea and Thessalonica while Paul went on to Athens. Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, and Timothy and Silas finally catch up to him. And when they caught up to Paul, Paul was eager to hear a report of what their experience was there in Thessalonica and Berea. And actually, Paul references this over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, understanding that this is all part of one big story. Paul talks over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Again, Paul's letters overlap the book of Acts. And so when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, he's writing, having heard Timothy's report of what had happened while he was away. If you want to understand this better, get you a chronological Bible so that you can read these things in their chronological order. What an encouraging word Paul got when these guys finally got caught up. It's been tough ground to plow back in Thessalonica. Go back to chapter 17 and remember that. Yet in spite of that tough ground, this little church plant that he had left there, it was actually taking off. There was excitement and enthusiasm. The work that Paul did wasn't in vain. The trials he endured wasn't for nothing. If you're discouraged today, then you need to think back to times in your life when you can remember seeing God move and work and do remarkable things in your life. If you're looking today and all you can see are the circumstances in which you find yourself, ask God to show you times in the past where he was faithful and did great and mighty things in your life. That'll encourage you every single day. You know, I've got several of those marquee moments in my life when I think back to to watching God work, I, I, took, I just was reflecting on that as I was, as I was putting this sermon together. and a, 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 An event came to mind that, that just uh, was such a blessing to me as, as, uh, as I was thinking about it. it was at camp. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I tried to do is, is go to camp when, uh, when our students go to camp or when our kids go to camp and things like that. And we were at, uh, we were at Global uh, over in Chatsworth uh, for camp one year. And we brought a young lady with us. Um, and she was a bit of a wild child, and people were praying for her because there was this idea, this sense that if, if this young lady would find Jesus, that, man, she would be an influencer and that she would bring other people to Jesus, that if you could just, get, if you could just see this girl give her heart to Jesus, you knew that she'd do great things for the kingdom of God. So people were praying for this young lady that she'd find Jesus, that she'd find Jesus. And I'll never forget, we were in the worship service at camp, and if you've never been to a youth camp worship service, and you probably never really truly worship. Um, but we were sitting there, 
And the preacher gave a, a particularly powerful evangelistic word. And he had already kind of told us what the invitation was going to look like. And, and he was looking for courageous conversions. Like, not the, if you want to give your life to Christ, sneak out the back and there'll be somebody back there to, to help you. He was looking for people that were ready to make it public. And he got to the end of his sermon and he said, I want everybody to stay seated. And at this point in time, he wanted everybody looking. Like, it wasn't one of those every head bow, every eye closed invitations. And he called for people, if there's anybody in this room that's not a Christian, that today needs to become a Christian, I want you to, before he could even finish, this girl stood up. Only one in the room who stood up before he was finished. And she stepped out of the aisle and she made her way to the altar before he was even finished giving the invitation. And that young lady gave her life to Christ that night. And I want you to know what happened because she stood up and was courageous to find Jesus that day. A whole bunch of other kids in that room were courageous to find Jesus as well. Because her courage inspired other people to, give, to follow, to, to, to be obedient to the call of God on their life. And, and, and you know what's great about it is that story didn't end there. Because this young lady that gave her life to Jesus that night at camp in such a powerful, profound, courageous way, she's serving as a missionary in the Philippines to this day. Uh, I was looking at her Facebook page earlier, and, uh, and she was talking about how she was in, uh, uh, she took a long weekend to some, some exotic South Pacific island with her husband, and I thought, man, that must be nice. Our long weekend's to Gatlinburg. Her long weekend is to some, uh, some Pacific atoll down there or something. But again, it's just one of those many moments that, that I can think of where, where if I'm discouraged today, well, maybe I don't even see God today. Maybe I can't hear him today. But I can look back in my life and I can see over and over and over again where God was faithful, where God moved, where God worked, where God did awesome and mighty things. And that's an encouragement to me. Do you have those moments in your life? Those moments that you can go back to. Those, those, those moments where you can remember where God was faithful, where God worked, where God moved. Because even when you don't see God today, you know his character. I believe it was Spurgeon that said this. He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trust his hand, we must trust his heart. You may not can see him today, but he's been faithful over and over and over and over and over again. He's been faithful to you, and he's been faithful to generations before you. He's been faithful to his people from the time they've been his people over and over again. And so maybe you are discouraged today. And the very best thing you can do today is to think back to that moment. Maybe the only thing you can do today is to think back to that moment when you gave your life to Christ. At the very least, you ought to be able to reflect on that day and pray with the psalmist in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you're discouraged today, if you can't go back to the day of your salvation and find the joy and the gladness and the happiness and the hope that was poured into you on the day that you gave your life to Christ, I don't know where else to start. Sometimes we may even find ourselves discouraged in the midst of seeing fruit. You see in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 18 that Paul saw some pretty prominent conversions. The leader of the synagogue there. 
But even still, we recognize that in the middle of this fruit that was happening there in Corinth, that there was something that was unsettling in Paul's heart. Uh, Again, we don't know what it was specifically, but it isn't hard to see generally what could be going on. You have the moral climate of Corinth that weighed heavy on Paul. You have the, the, the lasting effects of the beatings and the persecutions and the trial. We can't be for certain what it is that is weighing heavy on Paul's heart. But verse 9, we see Paul is given a vision. He's given a vision. And with that vision comes another reminder. We need to remember that respite from our discouragement can always be found in the Word of God. God came to Paul with the most common message of the Bible. Do not fear. Over and over again, the Bible says that. It is the most common, most frequent commandment of the Word of God. Do not fear. God says to Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. This word that God gives Paul gives us insight into his condition. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Oh, here's a clue. Because Paul had started to see a pattern in his ministry, right? What happens to Paul? Go to a town, preach the gospel, see converts. Then what happens? Face suffering. The more converts, the more suffering, the more trials. I'll tell you what, if, if the end of a successful day of work for you involves some sort of beating or some sort of, some sort of trial or some sort of suffering, it makes it hard to show up and want to do a good job, right? If you're good at your job and, and the end of the day when you get whatever, whatever feedback you get and the feedback is you get beat on the back with a whip, I'm probably not going to work as hard tomorrow, right? I'll just kind of be mediocre tomorrow. If mediocrity gets me no beatings, then mediocrity it is. It makes it hard not to, not to, it makes it hard to show up for work in the morning if when you're successful you face a lynch mob or a beating or, or jail time. So what's going on here with Paul? Paul's worried about what's about to happen. He's about to experience hardships and trials again because he is successful. Man, the head honcho of the synagogue got saved. His whole household got saved. That's a big deal. And so what God tells Paul is something we all need to remember. We need to stop worrying about troubles that we've not yet faced. Ever had that tendency before? You're worrying about things that aren't even a reality. I've heard it said this way, you're you're borrowing trouble from tomorrow. I ran across a story about Abraham Lincoln. He was on his way to Washington for the inauguration. He spent some time in New York with a man named Horace Greeley and told him an anecdote which was meant to be an answer to the question which everybody was asking him. Are we really going to have a civil war? Back in his circuit riding days, Lincoln and his companions riding to the next section of court had crossed many swollen rivers, but the Fox River was still ahead of them. They said to one another, if these streams give us so much trouble, how in the world are we going to get over the Fox River? Well, when darkness fell, they stopped for the night at a little log tavern. There they fell in with a Methodist presiding elder of the district who rode through the country in all kinds of weather. He knew all about the Fox River. They gathered around him and asked him about the present state of the river. Oh, yes, he replied. I know all about the Fox River. I've crossed it often and understand it well. 
But I have one fixed rule with regard to the Fox River. I never cross it till I reach it. How many of us are worried about the troubles of tomorrow or next week when we've not even dealt with the day just yet? Have you ever found yourself in the midst of borrowing trouble? You go ahead and prepare for the worst and everything, and in doing so, you create for yourself hardships and trials that you may not have even been meant to go through. Let God's words encourage you here and give you respite from that very bad habit. Do not be afraid. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know what happens in Corinth? God keeps his promise, because God always keeps his promise. God told Paul that he wouldn't be beaten or face hardship while he's there in Corinth. And if you keep reading all the way through chapter 18, you find that God keeps his promise. Nobody harmed Paul. He faced opposition, but no one harmed him. In fact, it was his oppressors who were met with hardship this time. We're told that Paul spent a year and a half there in Corinth sharing the gospel freely. And by the time he left, well, there was a church there. She wasn't a perfect church. I always know pastors are thankful for the church at Corinth because it always helps us to see that our church isn't nearly as bad as it could be. But Paul had a fruitful ministry there. In spite of starting it in the midst of a great season of discouragement. When you're facing whatever discouragement you may be facing, please understand this. You're not unique. You're not the first person to walk down the pathway. But do understand this. You ought not try to walk it alone. You need to walk it in community. We need people. We need the church in our lives. It's not sufficient to be on an LED screen as we have tried to do for the last two years. There was once a lady, I always went to the post office in her town because the postal employees there were friendly. I don't know where that post office is. She went there to buy stamps just before Christmas one year, and the lines were really, really long. And somebody pointed out to the woman that said there was no need to wait in line because there was a machine in the lobby where she could buy stamps. She said, I know, but the machine never asked me about my arthritis. We need people. We need flesh and blood people sharing and doing life together. We need the church to be the church and not just something we watch on YouTube each and every week. And don't forget that God has always been faithful to keep his promises. Even if you can't see how your current situation could possibly end well, understand that it may not be intended to end well. It could be that God has something in mind that you can't even see yet. Paul would tell the church at Corinth that it was actually his weakness that God was pleased to use. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient weakness, or my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. None of us sign up for difficult times, but we ought not write off our difficulties too quickly, because it may be that our difficult times are exactly what somebody else needs as we serve them and care for them out of our own hardships. And don't ever forget the encouragement that we find from the Word of God. Just make sure you're looking in the right place when it comes. There was once a young couple, they were very much in love, and they were getting married. 
However, the bride was a little bit nervous about the big day, and the preacher was trying to encourage her, and he chose a verse that he felt would be a tremendous encouragement to her. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Well, the preacher had asked the best man to read the verse out loud and to point out that it was an encouraging word and that even that the preacher was actually going to use that later on in the ceremony. However, the best man was not a regular churchgoer. He did not know the difference between John's gospel and John's letters. And so he introduced his reading by saying that there was a very good verse for the bride that would be a great encouragement to her, but instead of reading from 1 John, he read John chapter 4, verse 18, which says something along the lines of this, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. (laughs) God's word is an encouragement to us. God is faithful to us, and God gives us great community in which to dwell. So if you're facing discouragement today, take heart, because we have a God who knows everything we fear, knows all of our anxieties, knows all of our concerns, knows all of our discouragements, and is willing to walk with us faithfully through each one. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness in which you present it to us. God, I thank you that You are always good, just as we have sung today about the goodness of God. Lord, whatever season we find ourselves in in which we are facing what seems like insurmountable problems, it seems like the odds are stacked against us. God, I pray that we would remember your faithfulness, we would remember how important the community and the body of Christ is, and remember how true your word is. God, I pray that there's any here in this time, in this moment, that are facing discouragement, that they would realize that you love them, that you're faithful to them, and that you want the best for them. And it may be the best for them is not that they be delivered from their trial or their hardship. It may be that the way they walk through their hardship is exactly what somebody else needs, needs to see, needs to experience. It may be that, that Lord, in the, in the midst of, our, of, of whatever difficult season in which we find ourselves, that we've just taken our eyes off. Like Peter in the ocean, we, we've taken our eyes off Jesus and we focused a whole lot on the waves. And as a result, we sink like a rock. And so may we do as the writer of Hebrews says, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, yet today sits at the right hand of God the Father. May we keep our eyes. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.